Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this program, we honor and pay tribute to folk singer Ronnie Gilbert, who died on June 6, 2015, at the age of 88. She is best known, perhaps, for her powerful contralto voice when she sang with the Weavers, the extraordinarily popular folk music quartet in the 1950s and 1960s. She also had careers as an actor and a psychologist. In this Radio Curious Archive edition, Ronnie Gilbert describes her introduction to music, how the Weavers came together, their blacklist experience, her thoughts about turning 70 years old when this program was recorded in September 1996, and her friendship and work with Holly Near. We conclude with Holly Near recalling her friendship with Ronnie Gilbert. And now we begin with Ronnie Gilbert. or so when my my parents put me into dancing school and I I ha- had to lead my little dance class in a in a routine and generally all through school in those days back in New York City there was always a chorus in school there was always a choir and uh, we moved from place to place in the depression you know trying to find better and cheaper housing and I had I went to a lot of different schools and there were always there was always a, a chorus to sing in and I was always in it so there was always that going on and then I belonged to a Gilbert and Sullivan group and uh, also a theater group and acted with a theater group and there was some singing in that and then at 16 I went off to Washington DC and got a job in the in the housing department during the second world war when they were hungry enough for personnel, for office personnel to hire a, a little 16-year-old know-nothing like me. And uh, I was there I was in this big, booming town, and kind of a lonely and, and frightened 16-year-old. And down in the basement of the rooming house I lived in, this group used to meet. They called themselves the Priority Ramblers. <laughs> and they sang what we call now bluegrass music and country music, gospel hymns and so on, with the words changed to match the events and the concerns of the day. For instance, old Bull Weevil song, just looking for a home, just looking for a home. Well, they turned it into people not being able to find an apartment in Washington, D.C. It was that sort of thing, you know, round and round Hitler's grave, round and round we go. And then gradually they pulled me in, my, my my now very dearest, dearest, oldest friend, Jackie Gibson in that time, Jackie Alper, took me under her wing and we sang Johnson Boys together and that sort of stuff. That was my introduction to American folk music. And I hung out with them for a couple of years and then went back to New York. And in New York City, at the end of the war, a lot of people had come back from being overseas, being in different places, and generally regrouped around the things that they were interested in. And I joined in with a folk community. There was a small folk community, largely around Pete Seeger. And the Weebers uh, formed out of a chorus that old Pete Seeger was trying to put together, you know, Pete Seeger is one for choruses. 
Right, he makes them out of the concerts where he sings. Indeed he does, indeed he does. So there was this chorus, and there were eight or ten people in it, and and gradually it was just, it paired itself down to the four of us. We had this extraordinary phenomenon that our voices just seemed to find each other. I don't know exactly how to describe that, but they just rose out of the other, uh, out of the other voices and, and found each other. And we, our, our harmonies were non-traditional and very interesting. And uh, we stayed together and eventually found a name, the Weavers, and eventually got into singing commercially, which was certainly not what we had started out to do. The other members of the Weavers were you and Pete Seeger, uh, Fred Hellerman and Lee Hayes. Right. Well, of course, Lee, we lost Lee uh, just after the the uh, film was made about the Weavers called Wasn't That a Time. People who watch public television would have seen that because uh, they played it pretty often. Lee died just after that was made. And then the three of us go on with whatever our lives are and once in a while see each other, but we don't sing together anymore. We have, though, on one occasion, Freddie and I sang recently for uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary on one of their specials. <laughs> we got together with a bunch of people and sang there. And now you sing with Holly Near. Holly and I met over one of her early records, a live album, it was called, which she dedicated to me. I didn't know her. I didn't know anything about it. I think she dedicated it to me because they thought I was dead. <laughs> well, they were wrong. <laughs> but we met over that. Uh, she eventually, we, we met. I was so moved by that record. At first I was annoyed because usually you get asked if you want, if, when, when somebody wants to do that. And I thought, oh no, I can. Who is this? And I don't, you know. And then I heard it, and I heard that glorious voice and that marvelous consciousness and that extraordinary songwriting ability. And I was very, very proud to be to be named by her as a, oh, I don't know, as a model or an example or whatever, you know. And then we made this film. The film was made about the Weavers. Wasn't that a time? And we had several people came to be on the, in the film as kind of Weaver's children, people who had been influenced by us, and Holly was one of them. I was so excited by this new young voice, this writing in, a, in another area which hadn't existed when the Weavers were going, which was women's music. And so I was so proud of that, and I wanted so much for that to be in the film, you know, if possible. And sure enough, Holly and I did this little bit in the film where she, they interviewed her and I was there, and quite spontaneously, we started to sing one of her songs, Hay una mujer desaparecida, the song about the disappeared women in Chile. And that little 30 seconds or whatever it was, raised such a, a storm. People began to call Redwood Records. When are they going to be singing together? When are they going to be? And, and so they said, what about it? And I think we tested our toes in, at the Vancouver Folk Festival and then went on a tour together. And it was remarkable. It was remarkable. It was, for me, it was much like the beginning of the Weavers. 
when we four heard each other because Holly's and my voice just they just went together. They went together. <laughs> just went together. And this week you're starting another tour. In... And this week we're starting that now. That was 10, 12 years ago. And we've, we did that for a couple of years, and then we each went our ways. And here we are doing it again, 10 years later. In honor of your 70th birthday. That's right. <laughs> oh, happy birthday. Thank you very much. In your experience in your lifetime and the different stations you've visited in your life, do you have some ideas about how older people are treated, ageism, discrimination toward people with many years? Well, there's a lot to be said about that. You know, for the most part, and uh, somehow in our society, older people are either ignored completely or they're sort of in the way. I tell you, I'll, I'll give you a little example. I used to live in New York City. I have lived a lot of other places in the United States besides that, but I, I found myself in New York City uh, 10 years ago, let's say, 10 dozen years ago, living there. And I got online at a bank, and there was an old man somewhere in front having a hard time with the bank machine. And everybody on the line was jiggling and hissing and carrying on, you know. Here was this poor old guy who was trying to make his way through the buttons and all of that. And, of course, the more they did it, the more upset he got. And so it took forever. And nobody had any patience. It was like they, had to, they, they couldn't wait the extra half a minute. And I thought to myself, I don't want to grow old in this city. I just don't want to. This is not a good place to be old. And then we moved, uh, my, my partner and I moved out to Berkeley, and she said, you know, there's an awful lot of old people in this town. And I said, no, there aren't any more than there are in New York, but they don't hide here. And that's really what it amounts to. Do you have to hide? You know, can you be seen? Uh, we go to a restaurant, and almost invariably I'm treated like my partner's mother. Well, okay, I guess I look like my partner's mother. But, you know, there's certain attitudes. There's certain, there's certain we don't want to know that we're going to get old. People don't want to know that they're going to have wrinkles. There's, this, there's all this stuff, age creams, so you just look like you're getting old. And we've turned ourselves against our own aging process. And old people feel this wherever they go. Now, obviously, some people become infirm when they get older, and some people don't. And we're not, we don't all have to be treated in the same way. You know, I look in the mirror and I say, yes, that's 70. I have to practice saying it because 70 seems to me to be old, you know. It is. And I have to practice saying I'm old and, and be proud of that, you know. But why do I have to go through all these contortions? Because we have really disowned our old people. I want to take a moment and say that my guest this week is Ronnie Gilbert. She's talking about uh, her life, her stories. You're listening to Radio Curious, and I'm Barry Vogel. Ronnie, why do you think it is that our American culture has these attitudes towards uh, people who have many years in their life? Because it sells a lot of cosmetics, that's why. <laughs> it's only a commercial issue? Of course. It's it, really, you know, we're a mercantile society. Everything is merchandise. And whatever can be made money on, whatever can be merchandised, is it, 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 that's a very simplistic answer that I've just given you. But the thing is, it feeds, we feed ourselves off of that kind of thing, you know. It's also economic. 
I think this we're going to see some changes happening now as the population ages. But but the idea that you know that we need to get out of the way so that we can make room for young people, we do get out of the way. We do make room for them. But so does the society have to make room for us. No, what do we got to hand our kids? Terrible, terrible. Uh, for for kids to grow up in an atmosphere which says, when I get old, I'm going to be, nobody's going to want me, I'm going to be useless. Ooh, terrible. That doesn't work. I don't think so. Very bad for everybody. In the years that you've been singing and alive and traveling around, I know that you've seen many different people and been in many different towns and cities in the United States and throughout the world. I'd like to ask you how you've seen the change of the spirit of the people evolve over these years. Well, it's been a long life, and I've seen a lot of changes. You know, right after the the, the war, the war to fight fascism, to get rid of Hitler and all of that, we all came out of that with a sense of, of great hope and and a sense that now that the, that great fight was won and at such a cost of life and, uh, you know, people's well-being, the world was going to be a smarter place, a wiser, better place. We were going to, we were going to, we, we learned a lot about people that lived in, in those days. It was so far away when you said Russia, you know, it was just so far away. Today it's nothing. Everybody travels, everybody. But in those days it was really something to go to go on a trip that would take you to another country. So we all thought, oh, this is, this is what we're going to have now is a, a real sense of kinship with the world. Well, it didn't happen. What happens almost as soon as the war ended, even before, Soviet Union and the United States were in, in a war with each other after being allies. And both sides, you know, the, the leaders of both sides were making political hay out of out of all that, and, and we ended up in a Cold War, and one that cost this country, cost us, cost this society a huge amount in self-confidence, in fairness, and so on. We hit into the uh, McCarthy period, you know, and uh, what, what's called the McCarthy period, though it happened before McCarthy and after. And we were caught up in that. We, we were out there singing peace songs. We were out there singing around the world songs. The Weavers, you speak Weavers, about. I'm talking about, yeah. And, and we were definitely on the wrong side of things because what we were supposed to be doing was whipping up a war hysteria. And we were no part of that. We were also strong unionists, and we were lefties, you know, and left was a bad word, and red was pinko and fellow traveler and all of this, all these pejoratives, you know. Um, so when we traveled, at first we saw a great hope and a great, or at least I did, a great sense of enjoyment and fun and hope for the future. And then it turned into a kind of fear, kind of silence. We were blacklisted. So we didn't travel for a period of time. And when we got back on the road again, there was a kind of despair. And, and you saw the result of this kind of, God, here, we're back at it again. You know, now we're going to fight the Russians. The year you speak of would be when? Well, when we started traveling again after we were blacklisted, it would have been in the 60s by that time. We got together once again in 1956 for the Weavers at Carnegie Hall. And uh, the year after that, we began very limited traveling. We, we weren't, we were still blacklisted. We weren't, our, ra our records weren't played on the radio. We couldn't be on television. 
we were definitely not not hireable in any of the media. But we did play small concerts and we played colleges and you know di- people directly did not care much about this. It was this was something that was whipped up by people who made hay out of out of uh, uh, advertising and things like that. So we we did have a wonderful audience there and and saw the beginnings of the affluent society that we had. And I tell you nowadays I'm feeling like there's a whole new generation out there. I, I, I see these young high school kids, very much their own people. They, they haven't picked up on the, the despair. They're, they seem to be finding their own way. And of course it goes in extremes. There's some that are really very cynical. But many, of, many young people that I've spoken to recently have a lot of hope for the future and it is not Pollyanna hope. It's they know that they're in a wor- new world of technology. Then they're learning how to use it. There's some very interesting things happening. I just saw a documentary about a um, a famous old maverick journalist of the 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, George Seldes, who started a, a publication called In Fact. All the journalists in the country used to subscribe to In Fact because it was the only place they could trust to get news that wasn't biased. I.F. Stone, who put out a, a famous weekly called I.F. Stone's Weekly, modeled it on Seldes. Now, I've just been told that there is such a thing on the Internet. And it's available not just to journalists, it's available to everybody. I find that hugely exciting. And these kids know it. I mean, it's second nature to them. And they know how to plug into that. They know how to use that. So I have a a lot of hope. I feel like the generation of kids knows something we didn't when we were very, very young because it's a different world. And I have a lot of hope for the future. I can't say what the whole country is like. There's a lot of bad things happening for sure. But I think that we have reason for hope as well. In looking uh, not necessarily towards the past, but in reviewing the past, I understand you're working on a series of interviews that have evolved from Studs Terkel's book, uh, Coming of Age. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Holly's older sister, Timothy Neer, who is the artistic director of a theater in San Jose, San Jose Repertory Theater, has commissioned, the the theater has commissioned this uh, piece as a theater piece on Studs Terkel's book, Coming of Age, which is uh, interviews with people 70 years old and older. I think his oldest was 99. And I, I wrote a uh, review of this for a magazine, and uh, Timothy saw it, and she read the book and said, oh, Ronnie, we have to do a theater piece on this. These people are wonderful. And indeed, that's what I'm doing. I'm calling them, calling it for theatrical, for monologues and so on, and also Studs' own introduction, which is just hilarious, of his problems with technology. And of course, that runs through the book, too, you know, different people's attitudes towards technology. So I'm having a time in my life. I just love this work. <laughs> and Timothy, of course, so she, um, she and I have worked together a lot in the theater. She's uh, directed my production, the production uh, that I did of my own play about Mother Jones uh, at the Berkeley Rep. So we are old working buddies, too. It sounds wonderful. Ronnie, I'd like to ask you uh, how you chose the title 
This Train Still Runs for the CD that you and Holly released. It was a, it's a song by Janice Ian. Uh, Janice Ian, um, a couple of years ago, put out a CD for the first time in a long time, and it was full of the most wonderful songs, and that was one of them. When we started talking about doing this show together, I said, Holly, you and me have got to sing this song. <laughs> this has got to be one of our songs, and she agreed. And so we do it as a, as a duet. And um, and it just seemed like the perfect title. We haven't been together for a decade, but this train still runs. And individually, we these trains still run. So it seemed like the logical title for the for the CD. Ronnie, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. But before we close, I want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests at the close of an interview. And that is, could you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Oh, oh which one? I'll tell you the one I just finished. But I don't know what it's got to do with anything. But uh, I had never read any Salman Rushdie. And I just read a book called The Moor's Last Sigh, which is just a fabulous book. It's just so fascinating. This guy is such an incredible writer. It's it's part fantasy, part history, part well, just just I don't know. I mean, I don't know where it began. I don't know what what shall I tell you about it? Get it and read it. <laughs> well, that's it. Oh, hey, wait a minute! I've got a great book I'd like to tell you about. Go for it. One of the best books I've read in a long time. It's a a very small book. It's not a great big deal. Is by is a is a book called Making Movies by Sidney Lumet. And I have to say that it is one of the best things I've ever read on film. It's it's not deep. It's very very accessible, and it, and suddenly it just gives me a whole new look at at movies. We've been going out and getting all the Sidney Lumet movies and looking at them on videotape. It's just a delightful book. It's funny, it's informative, and for people who love movies. I can't recommend anything better. The other book that I just read recently is a marvelous memoir by Vladimir Posner, who is a journalist who's, uh, I don't know, he's kind of half Russian, half American. I don't know which half of, is more is more prominent. It's a terrific book and will tell people a lot about what was going on in the Soviet Union in the United States during the Cold War years and after. He's quite a remarkable guy. That's a hard question. <laughs> Ronnie Gilbert, I want to thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. Thank you. Thank you very much. Holly Near and I spoke briefly by phone on June 8, 2015. She shared a few of her memories of Ronnie Gilbert, her longtime friend. When I was a child growing up, I listened to a lot of the great singers. I actually would lip sync to some of them, and I could feel their voices coming through my little body. And when I heard Ronnie's voice singing with the Weavers, she soared above these other three men's vocals in a kind of extraordinary way, and you could just feel the power and energy of her voice. I had been singing with Ronnie since I was a child and had no idea that I would meet her in my 20s. And that we would go on to tour together and record together and be lifelong friends. My relationship with her started long before she knew it. And then uh, when we did finally meet, 
we sang a little bit together, and our friends said, you all can't keep that a secret. You've got to take it out to the public. What was wonderful about uh, touring with Ronnie is that our collaboration brought an amazing audience of people. We were cross-generational, so there were people from the old left, people who had experienced the devastation of, of um, McCarthyism, and then there were the new young feminists that were coming to hear my work as well as the younger anti-war people who were organizing to stop the war against Vietnam and um, working around Nicaragua Solidarity and Chile. And so here were all these, these different kinds of folks who all came to this concert and met each other. And some people were like grandparents who brought their, their children as well as their grandchildren to the concert. So we felt like we were in the presence of a most remarkable audience of activists and thinkers, and um, it was it was thrilling. What was very exciting for Ronnie and I was that both of us had theater training. Ronnie worked in the theater a lot. She was quite a powerful actor. And so when we performed, we took the music a little bit outside of the traditional folk genre. Uh, we took folk songs and songs that had uh, social commentary and political ideas in it, but we mixed in some standards and Broadway songs, and we also took the folk songs, the stories that were coming through them, and, and dramatized them a little bit. So the, the concert was was unique in that regard, and she had such a big voice that I never had to back off vocally. I was born with a big voice, and sometimes I have to back off and blend a little bit with whatever the other voices are. But with Ronnie, we could just meet head on, and uh, that created a kind of tension on stage, a theatricality, a drama that was very exciting. And I think the audience felt that. Well, Holly Neer, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about Ronnie Gilbert with us on Radio Curious. You're welcome. She will be missed, but boy, she sure did leave a legacy. We conclude this tribute to Ronnie Gilbert with a portion of Mothers, Daughters, Wives written by Judy Small and recorded by Ronnie Gilbert in January 2007. First time it was fathers, the last time it was sons, and in between our husbands marched away with drums and guns, and we never thought to question, we just went on with our lives. Cause all they taught us who to be Was mothers, daughters, wives But we are learning The memory and lessons of folk singer Ronnie Gilbert are honored in this archive edition of Radio Curious, recorded in September 1996, and concluded with Holly Near sharing her thoughts and memories of her longtime friend, recorded on June 8, 2015. A visit with Ronnie Gilbert portraying Mother Jones may be heard by searching Ronnie Gilbert at radiocurious.org. The books Ronnie Gilbert recommended in 1996 are The Moor's Last Sigh by Salman Rushdie, Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, and Eyewitness 
A Personal Account of the Unraveling of the Soviet Union by Vladimir Posner. Radio Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California. 95482. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.